0: January 21st, 2010. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Susanna Herculano huzel of the Institute of Biomedical Science at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro. Hi, Susanna. Hello. And around the room, we've got Todd Troyer. Hello. Carlos Palladini. Hello. Jim Bauer. Hi. And Charlie Wilson. Yes. Hi. And me, I'm Salma Karashi. I'm your host. Susanna is a comparative anatomist, innovator, and author of a number of books on popular neuroscience. Her research casts a critical eye on the popular view that human cognitive abilities arose from an evolutionary blip that caused a disproportionate cortical expansion in us relative to other species. She's developed a brilliantly simple, quantitatively rigorous method to count cells across the entire range of phylogeny to figure out what brain size really means and whether the human brain is as exceptional as we originally thought. So there's so much to talk about, but I want to hit some of the nuts and bolts of your findings since they're so compelling, and then get to the computational ramifications of these and what they tell us about the evolution of functional um, capacities. But there are a couple of items I, I hope we can hit, so just bear with me for a minute here. So first, um, just the most basic question about how many cells comprise the brain has been controversial alone. Um, I think it'd be great to get a critical assessment of where some of the numbers that we hear about have come from and how your self-counting method compares to stereological and volumetric studies that have sort of predominated the field in the past. Next, um, we should talk about your critical findings that brains scale differently depending on a mammalian order, which not only confounds traditional ideas that absolute brain size determines neuron number, which determines our uh, cognitive abilities, um, but it also points to some cool principles of economy and primate brains that apply to us. Um, Contrary to this, you've also found that some scaling principles are remarkably conserved across orders. So I'm talking about the coordinated scaling that you see in cortex. And cerebellum, um, which implies that scaling of functionally coupled regions is closely matched. But I'm I'm also wondering, might that also suggest that connectivity may be a more relevant principle that governs cognitive abilities rather than neuron numbers? Just throw that out there. So that's a lot. So let's just start with the first question, which is, why do we not know? Why have we not known until very recently how many brain, how many set of neurons comprise the brain, how many cells comprise the brain? I
1: I'd say part of that is a methodological issue because the the standard method was stereology, and stereology is very good for determining numbers of neurons in precisely defined structures, like brain nuclei or a part of the cortex, but not for the brain as a whole. So that's the methodological part of it. But I, I, I think that the other part of it is that there seemed to be a consensus in the literature already about how brains scale And that was that larger brains have decreasing neuronal densities, so larger neurons. And because most of these studies used to be performed across species, across orders of mammals as a whole, say comparing cows and uh, monkeys and rats and rabbits all in the same study, then um, we got from there the, the idea that all brains, all mammalian brains, scale the same way. So even though we didn't know the about the actual numbers of neurons in these brains or in the structures, um, when we started this line of research, there's, there seemed to already be an idea in place about how brains scale. So I think there was this overall feeling that, well, we already know how this happens. So the actual, even though we don't have the the actual numbers, we have a good idea of how this happens. So, the question was seemed to be pretty much settled, except that we were an exception to that rule somehow. Well, and and that was the other part of the assumption that we did not match; we were uh, an outlier to these relationships.
2: This, this is so unusual, isn't it, for humans to decide that they're exceptions? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: and and that's that's what you find and. In every single book, of it, it can be a textbook, it can be a it book for the general Genesis. public. Yeah, humans are different, so I, I think it's great that, uh, well, from my biology major point of view, that uh, you know we can we can show that uh, we're built to the image of other primates, which is what you would expect from evolution. That's what Darwin told everybody. Hundred fifty from 50 years ago.
0: right. So what prompted you to challenge this idea, to think about this in a different way? I mean, it seems so obvious that, you know, like ungulates are, I guess, are cows and things like that, that they, their cognitive abilities and their repertoire of behavior is so different, even though their brain size is probably comparable to some primates, right? I mean, is that, yeah. what was your sort of, how did you arrive at this? Um,
1: and I, I, I think people had made peace with that idea, because if you look at a cow's brain, crack out at a cow's brain, it's it's huge. It's much larger than a baboon brain. A baboon brain weighs 150 grams. A cow brain weighs 300, 400 grams, right? And like I was joking in the talk, either cows have a very rich philosophical internal mind life, or that they don't tell us about, or there's something wrong in the story. And I think I think people make peace with this um, difference in. in brain size not being correlated with uh, cognitive abilities using the, the idea that um, body size is important. And that's how we get to the idea that human brain is so different because if you compare our brain to body size relationship to great apes, you see that a, a gorilla can be, can weigh as three times as much as humans and their brain is a third of ours. So compared to a gorilla, our brain is, our, our body is smaller and our brain is huge, right? Um, but actually what, what what got me started thinking about this was actually a survey I ran in Brazil on public neuroscience literacy. I wanted to, this was when I started working in science communication and I, I was hired to design hands-on activity for the Museum of Life in, in Rio um, on neuroscience. And, well, I figured first thing I want to do is know to whom I'm talking. What do these people know? What, what are the ideas that they have? So I designed a large survey of statements, short statements. People just had to say yes, no, or I don't know anything about this. And one of the statements was, we use only 10% of our brain, and 60% of college-educated people in Rio agreed to that. That's whopping, and it's a myth. As far as we know, we use the whole brain, the whole time, just in different ways, but we use whole of it. Yeah, there's. I don't think anybody really knows. There are a few educated guesses as to where it might come from. One of it is a misinterpretation of and um, what's his name, William James, um, saying that uh, we don't use all of our abilities. The other possibility is a misinterpretation of Carl Ashley's experiments on how much of the cortex you can remove before an animal can to get around in a maze.
2: Actually, one of the things about Susanna, who we collaborate with, this is Jim Bauer, is that we both share this deep interest in uh, science education. And one of the things that people that study science education know is that human beings come with a built in set of assumptions about physical things and how they work. So a lot of what you're actually doing in early science education with kids, for example, is figuring out how to change the constructs that we're born with and turn them into something else through data, through experience, whatever. So we're all built with a, a core set of assumptions about how things work. And one core assumption about how things work has to do with the amount of stuff you're using is somehow related to, the, to what you're doing. Okay? Okay and so in fact it's very likely this is not something that came from reinterpretation of Ashley most of whom don't have never heard of or or James worse yet Uh, but probably it's just a built-in core uh, assumption set of assumptions about how the physical world works that all human beings come with
1: yeah but by 10 percent that number has to come out of Somewhere. It's a built-in so,
2: assumption that we, everything is ten percent.
0: Have I also heard that you use ten percent of your lungs? I mean, I, there are all these 10%, yeah, 10% so so ten percent. Ten percent is real. Ten is
2: one finger.
1: Yeah, well, I can I can see why this, <laughs> I've myth, got
2: more in this
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can see why this myth is so appealing to people. If you use only ten percent of your brain, that means that you have. Of the remaining 90% yeah. of possibilities, yeah. Of, of, thinking, sure, it fits um, into the self
2: help. Yeah. Uh, right, that you can have. Right, but right. if you think about it, you couldn't have, you know, it th- really, the assumptions. So 10, 10 digits, you couldn't have less than 10%, because that's half of a digit. And how could you possibly justify having two digits if, instead of one? So 10%, I think, comes about just yeah. simply by the fact. That the, our fingers are quantized into ten of them, so, so that's where we're yeah. yeah. counting so, the toes.
1: Uh,
2: but anyway, so
1: one, one, maybe
3: gorillas only use uh, they uh, five percent six twenty.
0: but
1: anyway, so the, the, the There was this other possibility. I actually found this mention in a website on the internet. That um well maybe the reason why we only use ten percent of our brains is that only ten percent of our brain cells are neurons. And you find that on page nineteen of Kendall Jessels and Schwartz it says right there the human brain has one hundred billion neurons and ten times as many glial cells. You do the math, you figure that brain neurons neurons are about ten percent of your brain. So if you accept the idea that neurons are what matter I and mean, glial cells don't do anything, which drives glial cell biologists crazy. But anyway, so if you only, use, if neurons are only 10% of your brain cells, then maybe that's why you only use 10% of your brain. So that's what got me started since I already had a very large interest in history of neuroscience. I started digging the literature for this number. So who showed that we have 100 billion neurons and 10 times as many glial cells? And it turns out... I, no matter how far, how hard I looked, I could never find a reference to that. I found references that people cite, so um, estimates, rough estimates of orders of magnitude, but no actual count. And I realized that there was a methodological problem, which was the seriology. And it, I just, from things that I had uh, learned in undergrad, I just think, I just thought, why, why haven't they count nuclei it's it would be so easy so straightforward you don't need to do stereology forget about counting cells just count nuclei and that's where we got the idea of just um, and that's the downside of our method we need to destroy the tissue to be able to count it but the upside is it works it works beautifully and it's fast and it's it's reliable so we can get those numbers now
2: can i, can I make another point about that which i think is important um so your your history is interesting, I think, um, in that you actually studied in some very high-level labs, both in the U.S. and in Europe, and then decided you wanted to do something in science education. Yeah. And it was through doing something in science education that you became motivated, uh, with hands-on as well, to go back into science. But I, the, the interesting thing, which I want to ask you about, is that the, the really i think in the uh, intro here it was something about a brilliant uh, least simple but quantitative so <clears throat> how much did your familiarity with the hands-on science as it applies to museum learning come into play in looking at a complex problem and coming up with a with a remarkably simple solution to do it
1: um you know, I, I'm i well aware that I have a very strange educational history compared to most neuroscientists. I've trained in plant biology and virology and genetics as an undergrad, and then developmental biology and then systems neurophysiology and uh, history of neuroscience with a very large interest. So... I I think science education comes in as a way of putting myself in other people's shoes and trying to think of what they would see when they looked at neuroscience. And so when when you do that, you need to, I, I wouldn't even say you need to make things simple. You need to try to grasp the basic concepts. What is it that we do know really? What does this mean? Why is this important? So I, I think I've profited a lot from communicating science because it gives me when I when I look when I read um, a regular research paper, I read it with two different sets of brains. Let's see, uh, let's say I, I, I read it as uh, an academic that works on that, but I also read. Thinking of my public, I, I write a regular column for the newspaper, so I'm always on the lookout for topics that might be of interest for the public.
2: So the reading it as a neurobiologist takes ten percent of your neurons, <laughs> and the uh, reading for the public takes ninety percent. I'd like
1: thinking? to say I, I, I'd rather think that both of them take a hundred percent of my brain, and I just can do the same things at once, which is which is great because I, I think it helps one think of your own work from a different perspective what is it that I'm doing and I, I tell my grad students and the, the, the courses that I students in the courses that I teach that it's it's really nice to be able to communicate science because of a number of other things but also because it gives you a different perspective on what what it is that you're doing so even that dreaded question you get from your relatives or people you've just met. Oh, you're a scientist. What is is it that you do? What what disease is it related to? And I, I don't think most young scientists or maybe even senior scientists are able to answer that like that in a snap with just two or three coherent sequences of uh, sentences. I, 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 and I think that's not because they're not articulate, they are perfectly inter- intelligent people, I think it's just that they had never just taken the opportunity to take one step back and look at what they do with a different set of eyes and explain it in a different way. Do
2: you think this is proportional to the number of scientists with Arsberger's syndrome, or do you think, well, <laughs> Um, so back, I think I think it's just story. like a
0: practice. So I want to talk about what you've actually found um, at the most basic level. So you found that there's there isn't this one continuum, this is one rule that applies to all different brains across right, the Right. Different life. brains are made so differently. You, you you counted cells at of I guess three different orders. Yes. So, so primates, insects.
1: rodents, insectivores. Right. Right. And we've compared how um, brain size varies as a function of the number of neurons that composes these different brains. So traditionally, what one would expect would be one single continuum of brain sizes changing as a function of the number of neurons that they, that they have. And what we found instead is that different groups of mammals have brains built as different function of the number of neurons that they have. And that can be, I think that can be quite Uh, consequential to what these brains are able to do. So if you take primates and rodents, for instance, what we found is that the rodent brain increases in size very fast as it gains neurons. And that happens because the average neuronal size increases as the brain gains neurons. So to give you an idea, on average, a rodent brain that has 10 times more neurons it's not 10 times larger, it's 35 times larger, which is a very cost-expensive way of adding more neurons to, to the brain. Now, on primates, when in primates, on the other hand, what you see is a linear scaling. Um, a primate brain that has 10 times more neurons is exactly 10, 10 times larger. So compared to rodents, that's a very inexpensive way of adding more neurons to the brain. And the result of that is that if you take a rodent brain and a primate brain of the same size, you find that the primate brain can have as much as three times more neurons in the same volume, in the same size. So it's a very effective way. The the, the primate um, evolution has made, has endowed primates with a very, very efficient and inexpensive way of adding neurons to
3: the brain. So is there any any evidence in terms of uh, looking at scaling of size with brain development and whether those trajectories very early on are, say, similar, but then uh, diverge, say, for rodents and and primates, in terms of you start to add stuff, and then at some point you do your strategy switches? Yeah, so
1: that's that's what we would predict, that... uh, Early on in development in, in rodent, in a, in a rodent brain, neurons would start getting bigger while primate, uh, primate neurons don't. Um, I think there's very few people actually studying that. Georg street is one of them, but uh, he's working mainly on, on birds. So that's something we're working on right now, doing a de- developmental timeline in a set of different rodent species. And then compare that with primates, preferably of the about the same brain size, so we can really compare them. Okay.
3: So you, you say that there's differences, you know, almost as if there's different evolutionary pressures on different orders of mammals. Um, but the the uh, animals in the same order, different species, also are under evolutionary pressures. And you say there's an advantage to having. More cells per cubic area or volume or something like that. But what's why why do like for example rats have bigger cells than mice? Um, if if uh, do they evolve along the same trajectory are um, down further down the evolutionary tree and is 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 there no cost to having larger cells?
1: Um, there's certainly a cost to having larger cells. Um, now I, at first. <laughs> first thing I'd like to say is that we, I don't think we can really think of evolution in terms of trajectories um, what I like to think is that sometime long ago when these three branches separated from each other so when you had the first um, radiation between uh, among the, the, the species that later gave rise to what we today recognize as insectivores which is actually a wrong name for them but anyway, rodents and, and primates and um, I think whatever happened at that time point just became just just spread on within insectivores, within uh, rodents, and within primates. That's not to say at all that nothing else has changed since then. We can't, we cannot just just assume that. Um, rather, what we can, what we what we do is um, presume that whatever has changed. Since that radiation, if anything, is has not been as major as what happened at that point. And what prob- what happened at that point, I like to think, was maybe something like changes in the set of in the genes that control neuron size. Actually, that's one of our um, key hypotheses right now. That um, you can you could think of the brain as a self organizing system. In which the, the the final adult composition of the brain would be the could be the result of a very small set of variables, and one of them is the number of neurons that that brain has, so through proliferation, and the other one is the average neuron size. So that's what we're uh, that's a model we're working on right now. That maybe the key difference across structures or across orders is just how. Um, neuron, how the average neuronal size is determined. And everything else might just self-organize around that.
2: So not just to be, and I was kind of, so this is almost Lamarckian in an interesting way. So what you're proposing is that the, the radiation or the, the point of divergence may have involved some change mutation uh, that resulted in a difference in the way brains are organized. Yes. And then, once you did that, you established these different orders, uh, which then evolved along different lines. And what, of course, is interesting about that is that in principle, brain computation in brains is also related to things like the niche you fill out, how you operate in that niche, much more so, for example, than even the shape of your knees. Right?
1: Right, Um, and I I think one of the the I have a physicist working with us in the lab. He's, he's our co that,
2: That's very dangerous. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> it's it's a lot of fun, and it's it's really great to be able... I, I think just like science communication is important, I, today I'd say it's very nice to work with people from different backgrounds because you're forced to put yourself in their position and, and likewise in the other direction. But anyway, so physicists, I've found... They they like to think in terms of optimization. Sure. They like to think of the optimal circuit, the optimal system. And I keep having to tell Bruno, my postdoc, that optimal is not important. It just has to be good enough. So whatever is good enough for dealing with your, your niche, your habitat, your necessities, as long as it works, as long as you can feed yourself and... Help your progeny move on. You're you're fine. If if a competitor comes comes up and, and 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 then maybe what you were doing is not good enough anymore. So
2: here's a question: If if you take the cerebellum out in a young enough animal, there's very little observable difference in the behavior of the animal.
1: Um. How. Can you really tell that if you're not? Well, you have have to look very closely. Well, see, people used to remove the cerebellum in the late 1800s and say, see, not not much happened to that person. This structure is not important. Um, And that's part of, I think, how we came to think that the cerebellum is not necessary for much more than equilibrium. And nowadays, we're finding with MRI, functional imaging, that the cerebellum is actually involved in language, in attention, in cognition of all it's sorts. It's
2: of active things. during those uh, processes. Yes.
1: Yeah. So it, it probably participates in some ways, and uh, I I think um, it's very it's it's very tricky to think that just because you haven't found an effect. That structure doesn't do anything. I think it's it's amazing how much we can learn to get by, to compensate.
2: So let me just toss out, and this is not my thing, but your thing. So, well, anyway, that uh, I think actually what the cerebellum is doing is giving you the last ten percent of performance.
1: The last ten percent of optimal performance.
2: Ten percent of performance. He,
1: he, he counts on his fingers. So yes. It's, it's got to be ten percent.
3: It's
2: five percent. How you
3: toes?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: So, anyway, so it's, it's sort so of interesting. But yeah. well, we, should, we should talk about it later. I'm not no, here. Talk but... about it. Go ahead
0: and talk about it now.
2: Might as well. <clears throat> oh, no, it would just take too long. <laughs> uh, so wait, but, oh, uh, oh, you can read my Scientific American article. And, I yeah, uh, know. Okay. Feel free.
1: <laughs> well,
3: i have going briefly what, about that. I think it is very difficult to tell what things are used for. There's an integrated biology seminar that I went to recently, Is this stream of people coming through looking at uh, leg size and running speed in lizards. Uh And there's always been this assumption, people measure running speed, they go in the lab and they scare them and see how fast they can run, (laughs) and they say, well, of course you need to run fast because you need to run away from predators and you need to catch prey, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that you have to do. Well, this guy actually went to this colony and measured things and took video of all the speeds of doing you know that, and it's only really important for getting away for very young when you've got very uh, small legs. It matters whether you can get away from a snake. But for everybody else, it doesn't matter. What it really matters for is for male lizards to run and scare away other male lizards from their territory. That's the only thing where the the because he did the, the genes to count the progeny that's the thing where it made an evolutionary difference. And where they just assume that it's good to run but like you said most of them if they can run faster than a snake that's all they need to do and if they can run uh, uh, enough to catch with the, the beetle they need that's all they need yeah. to do. But where it's really a pressure is so you need to run fast enough to have a big tear. Yeah. So it's very difficult to find out what, what the behaviors that you do. I think it's a real right. challenge. So, so right? I think you
1: can, you can always do a bunch of tests, but that doesn't tell you that you're doing the important test. You, it's how, how do you know whether you're doing the really crucial?
2: If it involves mating, you're probably pretty close. <laughs> probably. <laughs> but um, in fact, you may—I mean, I don't know if you know this or not—but there was a period of time when the cerebellum was regarded to be the site of sexual energy for the I brain. Didn't. And the reason that that was believed to be true is that bulls have a huge cerebellum. Okay. And we know the bigger it is, the more neurons it has, and therefore, no. So, <laughs> I've heard it's how you use at all. I think it is.
1: Yeah. Okay. Good. No. See, the thing I, I think uh, another interesting thing is, I, li- I I don't like to think that there's one way of solving problems. Um, I like to think that. We solve problems the way we do today with the brain that we have because it's it works. It has been good enough, and it's built today upon the same principles that were good enough millions of years ago.
2: Okay, but so let, let's back up one step. And it's and it's biologists generally think the brain is kind of a Rube Goldberg operation. That's and phys- that means it's sort of hacked together, and whatever works works. Whereas physicists are usually looking for something that comes thing, yes. down to an equation they understand. Yeah, and optimization is one of the things they understand, right? However, you know, one of the one of the and and it comes back to your talk um, and to your uh, to your research. Um, one of the things that modern chip designers have to deal with the two current constraints on making bigger or more powerful chips are the wires and the heat that's generated. Okay. And the solution that they're looking to, to fix those problems have to do with layering. Mm -hmm. Okay. And making the elements, the computational elements more complex. Okay. I think one of the things that you, you, that you have thought about and looked at and others in, in your data relation to other data has to do with this question of, you know what's getting bigger? Mm-hmm. Are there more connections? Uh, what exactly is it in the brain that makes this size brain in a primate do this, and that size brain in a in a capybara do that?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, to me, those are really basic questions, and I, I really get a kick out of thinking. I, it's it's great for me to to think that uh, we're able today to look at the most basic stuff. If we want to figure out how brains work, we need to know what they're made of. Like, what are their chips? How are chips added to this system? And and I I, I think it's really neat that um, it's a question that we once pretty much thought was solved already. We know how brains are how brains kill. We know what brains are made of, and it turns out. I don't think we do, really.
2: We don't know anything about Britain's. <laughs> that's the truth.
1: No, 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 but, no, no. I, but, I, I, get this, think, I get this. I get this often
2: from. So as long as. we're...
1: I get this often from um, journalists in, in in Brazil. They whenever they need to uh, write a new story, they several call me, and well. Um, the brain, the brain is a really mysterious organ, isn't it? And I'm like, not really. We know so much already. Of course, there's a lot we don't know, but um, I wouldn't say anymore that it's it's mysterious. There's so, so much we understand. So it's an
2: interesting combination. Biologists generally think that it's a hack, and they also think we know a lot about it,
1: <laughs> which is,
2: if you think about it, kind of conflicting points of view. But, um, uh, yeah, so that's... That, that's uh,
1: that's no, great. it's just that I, I I like to try to dispel this aura of mystery. You know, the first thing is that neuroscience is really hard, and I'm not going to be, I, the general public, am not going to be able to understand a thing about it if, if I don't have a PhD, and that's not true. And that this mystery aura comes right along with it. Oh, the brain is mysterious. I don't have a PhD. I'm not going to be able to understand it. It's, it's just not true. So,
2: so let me come back to one more thing which actually relates to something we were talking about at dinner last night. Um... And, and, and that is, that, and it goes back also to your script, which I know you, you were going to get back on in a minute. But And those of you that listen to this podcast know we probably will too. But anyway, the, 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 the question is this. I mean, there is sort of an elegance about what you've done. Because in a world in which everyone is buying a new $100,000, $200,000, $300,000 machine, Using six different uh, lasers uh, and very expensive antibodies, or this and that, and whatever, you sit in your lab with a simple microscope, right? Having reduced it all down to nuclei, using very simple staining techniques, and actually have, you know, are on the way to fundamentally changing the way we think about core issues.
1: Yeah. And
2: you're doing it in Rio de Janeiro. You're spending a lot of time here, too. (laughs) You're doing it Rio de Janeiro. so.
1: Well, it it certainly is very, it comes in very handy for me because that means I I, I set up my lab out of nothing. I had um, no research activities at the Federal University when I started this, and I was able to convince the funding agencies after I had some help from my collaborator, Roberto Lent. I was able to convince the funding agencies that this was a good idea, and that um, there was actually quite a lot that we would be able to do with very little money. And especially when you think that I'm competing with people who work in the U.S. with a whole, whole lot more funding and much more uh, fancier machines and all sorts of molecular resources, it's it's to my advantage really that I don't need much to do this. But yeah, I I. I, I, I really, I think I really get a kick out of, of the simple side of it. I, so last, I question do like,
2: last question on this line, because I, I do think it is important that, that, you know, to our audience that they understand some of these things as well as the details of the science. So last night my wife told you, who's a molecular biologist, told you that there's a machine now you can buy for only $50,000 <laughs> that can do what you do.
1: That's my lab budget for two years. I know.
2: But but that's not the answer you gave to her as to why you didn't want to do it. Oh, no. So why don't you give that answer?
1: I, it's, it's great that a machine can do it and uh, faster, but I want to sit at the microscope. It's, it's one of the greatest pleasures that I have to sit at the microscope and be able to figure out myself what it is that's going on in the other side. I think that's the, that's the major motivation for doing science, really. You get to answer the questions yourself. You get to pose the, the questions. And you get to test them, and you get to come up with answers. And the microscope, um, and especially for, for what we're doing, that's instant gratification. You sit there, you listen to your music, you're counting cells, you're, you can see what your what preparation looks like, you can see there if you did your work properly or not. And you get your numbers, and you get to think about them right there. And to me, that's what science is about. It's being able to look at the world, Try to figure it out. And if it doesn't make sense, how can I ask something about this? And how can I make that question significant but also approachable? Questions that don't have a way to be answered, they're not interesting. Not to me. But uh, if it's a question that you can address and you can get your answer yourself, to me that's what science is about. So I'd rather have my microscope. Well, I can't top that with a Another question. <laughs> just, that's the final
0: word. So thank you so much, Susanna, for well, being with us. Well, thank you so us. much for and having me. It was a pleasure. This has been Neuroscience Talk Show.